You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Good morning again. It's good to see you all. And, um, and I'm so glad that you're here with us for another Sunday morning. Um, it has been a long year and a half as we've been meeting virtually. And I know as I continue to talk with you, um, many of you are really excited about the opportunity of us to be able to come back together um, in the future. So Angie's going to tell us a little bit more about that. But next week, we have another opportunity where we're going to be doing a Eucharist meal um, Sunday morning as well. So I will look forward to seeing any of you who are comfortable to be there. And uh, of course, we've got a slew of outdoor social activities coming up as well. And always happy to see uh, some of you there. Um, we are slowly slowly making it through this. And I'm just so thankful for you guys continuing to be a part of this community um, in the middle of all the stress and burden that is maintaining life at a distance from people. Um, so thanks for all of your sacrifices to help keep everybody safe as well. Um, as we get things started this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, I'm so thankful this morning that you meet us in exactly the places where we are, that you call to us and you reach out to us through the, the journeys we've taken to get here, exactly in the space where we are now, and that in the middle of very difficult times, It's so wonderful that you both call us to be a part of growth and change and transformation. And yet you hold us openly exactly in the place where we are. Wherever we find ourselves right now, whatever our struggles have been, whatever loss we've experienced, I'm also thankful that you call us to do life together, that you created us to be social beings, um, to lift up and support one another, to lean on each other. Thank you for this community. Allow us to love and serve one another. Allow us to reach out into the world. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of growth and change in the movement you're doing in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm also excited this morning that uh, Steve Feckety is going to be sharing with us. And uh, if you have uh, known Steve through Central over the years, then um, you may have had the opportunity to hear him before. But uh, this morning, he's going to be sharing about Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. And, um, and I'm really excited to hear uh, more about that. Um, 
what an interesting place to be connecting Dante's uh, kind of walk and journey in his vision through uh, heaven, purgatory, and hell, which has legitimately shaped the entire view of how we understand those things. Um, so Steve, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say. Um, and I uh, was originally gonna pull a piece from, uh, from Dante as uh, Steve and I, uh, Max connected yesterday, um, but uh, there is so much and I don't wanna take the, it's a very difficult contextually to kind of hold together. So instead I wanna share a couple of brief pieces um, that kind of recognize where we are um, and kind of the reality of where we are and the hope of, of um, what God's doing and calling. So um, here, this is just two very short snippets of prayers and blessings um, that I thought would make a wonderful liturgy for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer? The one who raises the sun each morning and lifts high the moon at night ushers us too through cycles of rising, falling, and rising again. Though we stumble, God lifts us. Though we doubt, God remains. Though we get weary, God revives. God is an invitation allure, a chance to do things differently. Always before us, God is the possibility of collective change. Though everyday ordinary patterns of living disguise evil and cover over sins of power, God makes known what is hidden, calls us to courage, makes us capable of radical solidarity. We are not left powerless. Every day there are openings. Every day a chance to choose what is right. Every day an opportunity to repattern the world. Let this be our prayer. Amen. Thanks, Bubba. Uh, hopefully you've been able to grab something for communion. Uh, we'll, we'll be transitioning into that time now. Um, I have uh, just a, a bit of a call and response, and then I'll drop down um, a piece that we'll say together, too, through this communion liturgy. Um, when it's a call and response. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Uh, that is not for mine, just to be really clear. <laughs> just side all starting to drop in. Um, for what I, I'm going to put in, uh, the, the parentheses are, are the response. Um, so whenever you see those, feel free to unmute if you feel comfortable um, and say it and back together. Um, or you can just pray along uh, however you feel most uh, led. Um, but let's move into this time of communion now. Hopefully I've bought enough time for you to grab whatever it is you have today. I have uh, one of my children's uh, alphabet crackers and water. So 
a simple communion this morning. Uh, hopefully you have something. All right, so we will start with this call and response. <clears throat> the Holy One be with you. And also, and with, also you. with you. Open your hearts to the one who is love. We open our, open hearts, our hearts to, to you, O oh God. Let us give thanks to God who gathers us together. To, to the, the one who welcomes us to the table, we give thanks, give thanks and praise. God, your invitation to come and feast in your presence is but a taste of the love you extend to us every day. By your very nature, you are always seeking us out, searching for ways to connect us, to connect with us. You meet us in the most ordinary places and you make them sacred. By your grace, we come to recognize the holiness that dwells in the world around us, in our neighbors, in our own internal depths. Therefore, we join our voices with your people on earth and all the company of heavens singing to praise you. And I'll drop this in the chat too. We'll say together, holy, holy, holy one, God of justice and love, heaven and earth are full of your wonder, Hosanna among us. Blessed are you and blessed is your eternal table. You welcome all who thirst for justice and hunger to grow in love. You ask us to extend the same welcome to all of our neighbors. But God, since our beginning, we have struggled. And so in your love for us, you took on flesh in Jesus through his life. You pointed to your presence on the margins. You revealed the sacredness in all of life. You showed us how to live together, even among forces of destruction. Believing he could transform the world, Jesus proclaimed the good news. He called for the captives to be set free. He spoke of the lowly being lifted up. He talked of redistributing wealth and eradicating causes of poverty. His commitment to practicing love knew no bounds, not even the bounds of death. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus shared a meal with his companions. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. After the meal, he took the cup, blessed it, and shared it, saying, this cup that is poured out is the new covenant. In remembrance of all you've done to save us, we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ was birthed among us. Christ was killed among us. Christ rises again among us. Pour out your spirit on these gifts, O God. Make these ordinary elements into the sacred gift of your presence with us once again. May they awaken us anew to your everlasting invitation into a life of resurrection. Aliven us in our pursuit of a world where all needs are met, power is balanced, and the worth of every creature and creation is celebrated. In collective longing for a taste of your kingdom on earth, we join together in echoing the prayer of Jesus our creator who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And I invite you at this time to take what it is you have as your elements together in remembrance. Amen.
All right, thank you, Max. So uh, just a couple quick announcements. Saturday, September 25th will be um, the park get together at a Royal, a Royal Park in Pasadena at 2 p.m. Uh, May will send out details if she hasn't already in the children's ministry email. And then next Sunday, as Bob mentioned, the 26th, we will have an in-person service at the Parsonage. Um, and then afterwards will be a potluck brunch. So bring a dish to pass if you're able to. And then finally, we are going to be volunteering with the Essencia again at the end of the month. So if you are interested in helping out, please reach out to Max who can give you guys more details. All right, that's it today. Well, good morning again. And uh, of course, we always set some time aside for prayers of the people. So if there is anything going on that you would like for us to know about, to pray together about, uh, feel free to unmute yourself or uh, drop something in the chat and uh, we'll pray about that here. Um, I have, uh, oh, sorry, there's raised hands. That's such a great idea. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do mine quick. Um, my uh, friend, I guess, who some of you know, um, through Fuller or various circles, um, Caitlin, her dad um, this week um, had some medical complications and it was discovered that he has cancer uh, in his pancreas. Um, so they're obviously very... Um, <clears throat> Uh, worried, scared, um, all the things that go along with that. Um, early um, appointments have indicated that it seems treatable. Um, they have high hopes. They're trying. They're being up. The doctors are optimistic, but obviously, just with with that uh, entire um, process, so much, so much anxiety and stress and fear. Um, so, if we could just lift up Caitlin um, and and uh, her dad and her family. Yeah, of course. Let's pray. God, we lift up Caitlin's father specifically to you in his diagnosis and struggle with pancreatic cancer. Um, God, we're thankful that his prognosis is positive, that they think that it's treatable, but cancer is always such a scary thing. And there are always so many unknowns um, that we pray for him, that you would give him a supporting, loving community as he goes through this journey for her family, um, that uh, they would find comfort and peace in each other, um, and for the doctors and nurses giving him care, that, uh, that he would have the best care possible. Um, and God, as we talk about cancer, this is not something that uh, is far from us. Each one of us have been touched by the loss of cancer. Um, each one of us have struggled with the people close to us in journeys of cancer. Whatever this brings up in us, God, um, we pray for comfort and for peace and for just the continued work 
of professionals who are helping to change the scope of what cancer looks like in this world. Thank you for giving us this tremendous amount of knowledge um, to be able to work and research and treat. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Emily, I see your hand. Oh, you're still muted. Hold on. Let me, there we go. I'm going to ask to unmute you. Oh, okay. there we go. <laughs> I don't know how to do things. <laughs> so it's actually my hand, Diana. Um, so uh, it's another cancer related prayer, but my, my best friend, Valerie has had breast cancer for the last seven years and it's finally the end of the road for her. So they've given her a few weeks probably. Um, so I'm just would like to ask prayers for Valerie that, and for her family and for all of us that, that her transition is as painless as possible because she's already in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, she's trying, they're trying to get her, she's in the hospital right now and they're trying to release her um, Monday or Tuesday this week coming up so that she can transition into hospice and just be home for mm. her passing. Um, so I just, I just wanna pray that, like I said, it's as painless as possible that she is, you yeah. know, okay. And that everybody who is hoping to see her before she goes is able to be there. Of course, of course. I'm so sorry to hear that, Emily. That's... Diana. Diana. Sorry, Diana. <laughs> we didn't change the name, so it only says yeah. Emily on there. So sorry. We're gonna change usually anyway. Emily and Diana in there yeah. anyways. Right. Um, gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's, I mean, like we've, talk about so often here in prayers of the people it's just such a, a horrific reality of this broken world that we're a part of um let's pray for valerie god this morning we specifically pray for valerie after her seven-year battle with breast cancer and knowing there's no further treatment as she prepares for the last weeks of her life. We pray for peace in a transition that is unfair for any of us to know about. In her transition for hospice, we pray that she would be able to spend the time with the family and loved ones that she is leaving behind. That the people who love and care for her will be able to share those things with her. And we pray especially that this would be a time um, where she would be able to experience the least amount of pain possible. Thank you for Diana and for her friendship for Valerie. We pray for peace and grace.
in the middle of what is always a difficult transition for her family and friends and those close to her. Pray that they would be able to remember the great times they have had with Valerie and that her memory would live on in them, that she would continue to be a part of them as she leaves this place with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anybody else this morning? Well, with that, um, I am going to turn things over to uh, Steve if he is uh, here and ready. Beautiful. Um, and for those of you who have just stepped in and for those of you who are listening, um, Steve's going to be sharing with us uh, again about Dante's Divine Comedy. And S Steve, how long have you been a part of the community here at Central? It's been so many years. Yeah, five, maybe five years now. Five, yeah, wow. Gosh, we've been doing Four, this a long years. time. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you will probably uh, recognize Steve as um, one of one of the crew of our bald-headed men here at Central Avenue Church. One of the remaining ones, keep having people move away, but it's good to have a bald presence with us here, Steve. Uh, and his little guy, Gene, who uh, runs around the church. So uh, frequent visitors at the picnics that we're having. Um, but Steve, so good to have you here and can't wait to hear from you. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Happy to, to represent the bald people of the church for you, Bob. Um, yeah, so I, I will just give, I uh, just want to give a, a super quick and very mild disclaimer as I'm starting here that, as Bob mentioned, we're going to be talking about Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, there is, I don't think there's anything in my, in, in what I'm going to say that's too dark, but we are certainly going to be talking about uh, ideas of hell and things like that. So if you have any little ears in the room or maybe more sensitive, just something that you should know ahead of time. But again, I don't think there's anything too dark. Uh, I just want to start us off with that. So um, this past week uh, on the, the 14th was an interesting uh, historical moment that um, uh, that I came across, which was, it was the 700th anniversary of the passing of Dante Alighieri. Um, and the 701st, I think like uh, earlier or at the end of 2020 was the 700th anniversary of the publishing of the, the finish and the publishing of the Divine Comedy um his work he wrote it over the course of about 13 years but um but that was uh, the anniversary of of it being completed um now i uh maybe like a lot of people i'm not sure not everybody has their camera on but if, if anybody's read all of the divine comedy before it's a certainly a, a very long work um i'd read part of it in high school which i think where is where a lot of people you know first engage with it uh, and then in in the recent in like the past decade, I've uh, tried to go back and read the entirety of it several times, um, and it 
I've always gotten stuck really early on because it's just the, the, the heavy, the poetry of it. It's always like, well, like it's, it's hard to get into sometimes. So, um, I came across that this anniversary was coming up and that sparked me to kind of get curious about learning a little bit more about Dante. And that sent me down this incredible rabbit hole that, um, I'm going to be sharing with you guys today. So yeah, of course, I think we all in some ways are familiar with the idea of the divine comedy or often as it's shortened the Dante's Inferno being the, the first part of this. It's probably one of the most um, famous works of literature in all of history. And certainly if you haven't read it, you're at least very familiar with the ideas in it, or at least have been have seen its influence on the world around us. Uh, it's influenced pop culture for centuries. Um, Karl Marx references it in Das Kapital. Dan Brown wrote an entire sequel to the Da Vinci Code of, around it. Um, and if you know if those don't strike you, then it's you, you find it in countless films, TV shows, Liar Liar, What Dreams May Come, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Sopranos, one of the Ice Age movies. Uh, Mad Men, How I Met Your How I Met Your Mother, WrestleMania even talks about it. like it's it's kind of everywhere. It is uh, you know it, it's such a, a a work that has permeated our culture that it's really impossible to kind of separate out where its influence is and is not. And as a, a really quick synopsis, as a reminder, or if you are new to it. Um, Dante puts himself as the main character of the work. It's a poem, um, much in the way that, you know, like Homer writes poems. Um, and first he travels into, he, he finds himself having a midlife crisis and goes on a journey where he travels into the abyss of hell, which there are nine layers to hell, uh, limbo, and then these different layers based around the, the sins or the transgressions that the people within them had during their life. Um, lust gluttony greed wrath heresy violence fraud and treachery and then he journeys up to a mountain which is purgatory which is uh situated on an island here on earth actually and then up into uh the heavens um up into paradise which is again nine layers so you can sort of think of his model within the book as like a big hourglass with the earth and purgatory in the middle and and hell kind of below and heaven above um together these are typically viewed or kind of historically often looked at as like the journey of the soul towards god um and of course, I'm going to make an assumption that when I say Dante's Inferno or the Divine Comedy, there are some very specific ideas or images that are going to come up in your hell or in your head. Um, and uh, those are the images of probably darkness, torture, or uh, views of hell, the devil, maybe lines like "Abandon hope, all you who enter here," which is what's inscribed on the gates of hell. Um, and as, as Bob mentioned earlier, there's probably nobody in all of history that has had such an impact on our view of what we traditionally think of as hell or the, yes, um, or the devil than Dante himself. Um, the, the first book is filled with these super grotesque 
images and everything from our depictions of hell in, in cartoons and comic books and movies to our view, our image of the devil himself, this winged horned beast basically comes almost solely from this piece of literary fiction, this poem, which is an interesting thing to let sink in for a moment. Uh, if you were to leave after this and you were to go down the street and you were to stop 10 people at random and ask them what hell looks like or what the devil looks like, what you're probably going to get is a response that doesn't come from anything theological, but that comes from a poem written in the medieval period. Um, but it has become sort of our, our go-to, our standard for our view of this. Um, and just as a, like, even as an anecdote uh, that will kind of maybe become a little ironic later, like, this is referenced by everybody. It was originally called the, the Comedy, and about 150 years after it was published, an editor gave it the name The Divine Comedy because he saw it as uniquely divine in its writing. Uh, and even Pope Benedict, the, the last pope before Francis, in his first papal letter, the entire letter was inspired by parts of the divine comedy. So it, it's inspiring our, our theology and our religion even today. And those are, I mean, because of that I, I almost kind of dismissed it previously also when I would try to pick it up because it was just sort of, it was kind of there and I didn't really see that view as that relevant anyway. And yet I think that the influence of this book and its images are widely a, a misconception. They're a poor understanding of what is happening in this piece of literature. And there's a lot more interesting things that this has to offer us 700 years after it was written. He's writing much more than just this detailed image of what the afterlife might look like. In fact, what he's writing, what Dante was writing was a scathing critique of the political and religious landscape that he lived in. Dante himself, uh, he was a soldier, he was a politician, uh, he trained in medicine. Usually when you see a picture of him or a painting of him, he's in these red medical robes. Um, he was a scholar, he was really, really widely read, really intelligent, and uh, he was very religious. He was a devout Catholic. Um, but of all those different hats in his life, I think the one that's maybe most notable for us here is that he was an activist. Um, he was a devout Catholic, but he was really, really critical of the Roman Catholic Church of his day, and especially the political power that the Catholic Church had and things like the selling of pardons uh, for the afterlife for sins, uh, which is a uh, which was a practice called simony. Um, and as a, a really brief history lesson, so so there was this group called the Black uh, Guelphs that were around in Italy at the time, and Dante was really strongly against them. And they were working to try to get more political power for the Pope, the head of the uh, Catholic Church. Dante instead was found himself to be part of the White Guelphs, who were uh, who liked the Pope from the stance of a religious aspect, but really wanted to draw a line between politics and religion, really wanted to separate what we might today say as church and state. Um, he also pushed back 
very strongly about, against corruption and uh, monetary issues and greed within the, the Catholic Church and this sort of web of politics and, and religion that were happening. And he was one of the main public faces for the white Guelphs who frequently stole, uh, who frequently spoke out very publicly against that political power. And ultimately, the black Guelphs uh, went out, they exiled Dante from Florence, and they actually sentenced him to death if he were to uh, come back, which is an act that Florence 706 years later, only in 2008, actually gave Dante an official pardon for this, uh, uh, this sentence. So while he's in exile, Dante writes this poem. And within it, he probably very cathartically for him at the time, includes all of these enemies that he has, all of these politicians and these religious people that he wants to make these distinct political statements about from the time. In the realm of the wrathful in hell, he finds a, he places a prominent member of the Black Wolves that he did not like and has them be tortured in the realm of the wrathful. In the realm of fraud, Dante as a character comes across this man who is burning in this eternal fire and he talks to him and finds out that he's Pope Nicholas III. And even more than that, uh, Nicholas tells him that his two successors are going to take his place when they die and that they're all guilty of corruption and simony. So he's, he's not so much taking a religious view of the divine as it is a political piece about issues of power and uh, corruption and things in the world around him. This may be overstepping, but it almost feels like Dante might be like a 14th century rage against the machine or something, like writing these really political charged poetry. Um, and in fact, he's even writing, he wrote this in Italian, which was the, the common language for the common people to read, where most uh, people who were writing theologically or academically at the time would have been writing in Latin, the preferred language of sort of the elite. So he's writing for the common people in a way that they would see as politically charged words about people that they knew in their time. And uh, yeah, so like I said earlier, right, this is, people typically think of this as the Inferno, the first part of the, the three-part book. And uh, that sees Dante as this character descending deeper and deeper into the, the pits of hell. And he, he sees these bizarre and interesting ways that, that people are tortured in this uh, eye for an eye punishment. There's a term that's contrapasso, which means to suffer the opposite. So whatever the, the transgression of the person, they, he found this sort of equal way for them to suffer in the afterlife. He descends through each layer until he ultimately gets to the bottom where he finds the devil himself who's torturing the figures of Judas and Brutus and Cassius, who are two of the people that were um, assassinated Julius Caesar. But even the devil himself is suffering from this contrapasso because this winged horned creature is stuck up to in his waist in ice. So where he wanted freedom, he's now trapped and, uh, uh, and unable to, uh, to leave. And yet the book goes beyond this inferno that we typically think of when we think of Dante. In the second section, Dante leaves hell and, he's, and he enters this realm of purgatory. 
and sure, you know, so this shares this image with the Catholic idea of purgatory, which was pretty new around the time, uh, you know, a, a sort of traditionally a place that you would go to work out your sins so that you could get to heaven. But again, he takes the idea and he uses it to say something interesting or something different. Here, he is using this to, uh, Dante as a character in the book, becomes very introspective of his own life. Having seen what the consequences are of the hell that he just went through, he now starts to uh, think about how he can progress and how we can progress in our own lives and starts to ask questions of ultimate meaning. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have virtue and dignity? What's our role in the chaos around us? If hell is, a, is representative of the corruption that Dante saw in the world, um, purgatory sort of represented a, a society in transition. There's a sense of a hope for what could be. Moving from this sort of self-centeredness and, and transgression towards this idea of like commitment to the world around us and commitment to others and, uh, and virtue for ourselves and, and for like forgiving others and things like that. Dante's not, it's interesting because he doesn't hard, although he puts these people in hell that he clearly is torturing that were from the world around us, he doesn't ultimately harden his heart to them. He finds compassion and he's urging the reader to embrace virtues that are opposite to the realms of hell to not become like them. Like humility, forgiveness, generosity, love, altruism, things like that. Hell was what happens when a society acts for themselves, purgatory here is when individual, where individuals could learn to become ideal citizens for an ultimate ideal society in the future. And it's interesting that it's not represented as a place below or a place above, but he places it here on an island on the earth. And in fact, goes so far as to suggest that it's a place that people could actually go to who were currently alive on earth. He's making it really clear that the hope is established here and now and that the work is done here and now to bring the, to get closer to the ideals of paradise or of the heavens so yeah finally towards the end dante enters the uh the paradise he enters the heavens and again i think it's just important to note that while we tend to focus on the inferno here uh the work is called the comedy and it's not called the comedy because it's funny, right? It's comedy like in the sense of, uh, you know, Shakespeare and the Greeks and things like that. It starts tragic and it ends up hopeful or in a positive place. It ends up from the tragic, moves to the good. He moves up through the realms of heaven and he sees this progression. In the lower realms, people are still fairly self-centered uh to then ultimately becoming more and more concerned with the good the true the beautiful of the world around them and and of life and eternity the character of dante kind of has this vision from god that moves him to then send this message to people on the earth uh, and he looks down from the heavens and he sees this distant earth he sees that there's fighting and there's pettiness but ultimately, he also sees how blessed people are that set it aside to have better focus on helping the world around them. 
So yeah, I mean, some of that's a little sort of modernized or reductionistic, but ultimately this is sort of what's happening throughout this interesting 700 year old uh, text. And uh, it's interesting that so much of what we think of when when this comes up is this misconception and this reduct like redact sorry reductionistic version to just thinking about what torture looks like or what hell looks like, as opposed to this other totally different uh, message. So the, you know the question is what can we take away from this today in our modern political and social climate? Our modern world, after all, is so much different than the world that. Dante lived in. I mean, he lived in a time of like political and civil unrest. There was destructive warfare around him. There were immigration issues in Italy at the time. He lived through a period of climate change in Europe. There was this great disparity between the corruption and the, the greed of the wealthy and the, the other people, the poor and the commoners that were living in the area. And ultimately he even lived through a time of a pandemic in his life. Uh, so maybe it's like what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. What has happened, you know, will happen again. It's interesting how much there's a parallel here. And it's kind of odd also, just that this work is so embraced throughout the history of uh, Christianity. Because Dante's basically also writing this kind of remix album of all this other work that's around him. Within it, he's filling it with religious leaders, with politicians, people he knew, other historical figures like Virgil, who's his, um, who's the person that guides him through hell, who was a, you know, a, a, another writer from history. And then he also fills it with all these other Greek mythological characters. Medusa's in it, Cerberus is in it, uh, the Minotaur is in it. And it, it's this, sort of interesting work that if it happened today, there's no way that it would be viewed by the religious as, oh, this great view of what the heavens can be like and things like that. Um, I, I don't see that as just being something that could happen. Um, so yeah, this anniversary led me to 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 kind of dive back in. I had heard uh, a little bit ago, like a month or so ago that um that this was coming up and it caused me to to learn a little bit more i haven't finished my my read through of the book but i find that now that i've sort of learned a different lens through which to view the book that it has made it a lot more accessible for me and a lot more interesting to pick it up and sort of relate to uh, what's been happening in the in the world and and things like that uh, and just to to appreciate it and also just to throw out, you know, here in 2021, I think it it does really feel like we've sort of been living through the nine levels of hell for the last 18 months or so. And the poem ultimately doesn't stop there. It urges us to zoom the lens out, to kind of look at things from a long-term perspective, to give hope for the future. It's easy to get stuck in Dante's Inferno. If you try to go out and buy like a Cliff's Note version of this, which I did at one point, there's just one for the Inferno for the first part. It's easy to kind of stay there. And also for our lives, I think it's really easy to dream up an eye for eye torment of our enemies, of the political, the religious figures that are spreading hate in the world and misinformation and all of these things around us as we're kind of going through the climate that we're in. 
easier to be reactive rather than to act in ways that maybe speak out and lead towards kind of further movement forward. But while history often focuses on just the first part of the trilogy, again, it's important that Dante doesn't end there. He pushes past the Inferno, even when his guide Virgil, who was his ultimate hero in his life as a writer, can't move on with him. He, he still forces himself to kind of continue the path and move forward. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that this piece being a political, a social, and yeah, maybe still possibly a spiritual allegory calls us to a place of introspection, of looking at the world around us, bettering ourselves, our own virtues, and, and thinking about how we can better the the world we live in pushing us to be self-centered or sorry less self-centered in our actions and hopefully inspiring us to be more outspoken and political in our commentary of the world around us boldly speaking out against corruption against hypocrisy against misinformation against bad religion that we see around us and uh one other thing is it's worth noting that dante in his image of hell he Put, had a special place, not a special place, but he he placed those who saw evil in the world around them and stayed neutral, which is generally thought of as he was referring to another pope. Um, he placed that type of transgression as one of the most contemptible things in his vision of what hell was. We must act responsibly in the world around us, adopting positive virtues for ourselves, taking action to better the lives of others not being silent and pushing ourselves to take a long-term view of the world and our place in it so maybe there is something in this super old book to uh to give us pause or thought in today's world thanks thoughts questions If not, it's totally good. Has anybody, have you read Dante? So the, for those of you who mentioned it, so Bob said that you read it a long time ago. Um, a few others. Is this the interpretation or is this sort of how it was presented to you when you've thought of Dante in the past? Because for me, this was sort of a political and social view of it was completely new uh, when I started reading about it. That's a really good question, Steve. I don't actually know the, I, I, my context was first like really early on, I think probably in high school uh, and very superficial and maybe like talked about the illusions and analogies of like understanding, but it, I, I don't remember specifically that context. Um, but because it's like so pervasive in how we understand particularly hell, I've just been fascinated by it. And like you, I have tried a dozen times to pick it up and get into it. And it's, it's so heavy in the poetry. And I think there probably are better translations that would maybe make it a lot easier, but it's, it's so hard to get into and understand in the, at least the more traditional medieval translation that I, I think I've never gotten hugely through it. Um, 
certainly not at one time. I'll throw out there after going down a rabbit hole of translations, this uh, Clive James translation is very, very good. It's a more recent, much more recent translation where it does maybe like an ESV kind of version. It, it modernizes the language while trying to stay pretty true to the original. And it's been uh, also pretty, in, uh, um, uh, pretty important to me being able to read it again. Yeah, thanks. I just, I'll just say, I think that it was very new to me to understand that so much of our theology and what we believe about heaven and hell comes from things outside of the Bible. In my context growing up, or when I was younger anyways, um, like I don't, that was never ever something that was mentioned or is an idea that's just really uncomfortable. Um, mm -hmm. you know, especially with an understanding that like the Bible is the supreme authority and you realize that uh, actually a tremendous amount of what we believe doesn't have anything to do with, um, what you actually find in the biblical text. So, um, I don't know. I think for that, it's just been especially fascinating to see how, how much it's been influenced. And actually I think Dante's knowing that about Dante is, what kind of made comfortable for me more the idea that the Bible itself is such a political contextual piece and that so much of the ideas of the afterlife are borrowed out of Greek thought in the New Testament. And so, um, yeah, I just, I think like this opens up such a wider understanding of like what it means for us to hold ideas and texts sacredly. It's for me, it was one of the things that really opened up theology was like, uh, I remember, you know, my dad would, and I would talk when I was first starting to study theology and we'd talk about, oh, getting to heaven or whatever. And then the more I, you read and look into it, it's like, oh, it's doing something so much more interesting than just talking about what happens after we die. Um, it's like, that's the boring like surface level idea. And if you go even a layer or two deeper, you find this incredible, beautiful social and political commentary and kind of the same, a similar thing is happening here. I'm just reading Stephen's comment. Yeah, go ahead. Oh. Hello, uh, I'm Andre. Uh, by the way, thank you so much for the the talk. That was uh, very interesting, and that uh, I, I come from Italy, where we studied it uh, in uh, you know, like in the most dogmatic way possible by like taking the original version and every week reading through it, and then translation on the side and the sides, but try understand what it is are actually in content content more than the original piece itself because it was so convoluted uh, it was so far but uh i i the your uh read on it and your points really resonated with me and that kind of like matched in a way also my appreciation that throughout after high school especially since i didn't have the necessary maturity to appreciate parts i still don't <laughs> uh, to appreciate many aspects of it for example uh it positioning it as 
uh, an invitation to dialogue with the people that are the living was very interesting so much so that he even put still living people that he disagree with in hell and in uh, purgatory and uh, i always thought that was uh, particularly interesting and also the fact that how i always liked uh, virgil's uh, presence and character into the book almost it was almost as if a literary person virgil being you know on that broad dynate and the whole the link between the greek culture and literary culture and the roman one almost like passing the baton to the to dante and to the new generation at the time and in medieval times that was one thing that struck me was that it was particularly meaningful because people think of medieval times as dark and they always mention like the dark ages and because it seems as a fall from grace from the classical times it was really nice but there was also so much hope there was also so much uh, innovation there was a process of self-discovery and i really appreciated that you know like seeing for the first time oh you know it's not just stuck as a dark uh, a part of our history and it's actually there's hope and you mm -hmm. know he continues that in purgatory and uh, and uh, heaven and then like um, I actually have forgotten the the part that you mentioned about how uh, um, adamant he was against the the pope and like you know the separation between church and state and one thing that struck me was that ironically later on the Pope ended up embracing the book and using it almost as to promote the idea of purgatory and the sale of indulgences. And that was really interesting how it then kind of ended up coming like coming into a, a loop. And yeah, that's it. I I, I really I really like your description uh, of it. Thank you. Yeah, I really I really appreciate your thoughts. It it is interesting that it ends up being so embraced because it's like there's a lot of it where it's just like. I think you're missing the point. Like, did you did you read it? Because there's a lot of you know, because a lot of the there's there's a, several popes that are uh, tortured constantly throughout the you know throughout the text. Um, yeah, I find myself when I've been as I've been reading it and sort of meditating on it, thinking about what modern in, in sort of a modern context like who a i mean i think it's really easy to go okay who are the people from from now and like how do they end up in in hell and in purgatory and like uh teach them these lessons these lessons like if you were to to put people in this book where if people were reading it today they would very blatantly and automatically be like oh i get what he's saying because he put donald trump in that layer of hell, you know or, or whatever those people are in the world around us um but also like who are the guides who's the virgil you know like who are those people that we might talk about guiding through in in sort of a modern modern context um it's it's kind of gives interesting thoughts for for how this uh how this can be modern, modernized as well yeah I'll just know it's kind of been touched on before, but it's so interesting to me, those of us who grew up in you know, sort of evangelical traditions or, or around uh, those circles, 
just the difference coming back to them and just remembering it's like, oh, well, well, that's like, that's like the story about hell, but it's like about Catholics and, and there's such like a detachment from like how we categorize and compartmentalize how we're supposed to approach literature and art that it's, it's sad and also fun <laughs> to now come back to it and be like, oh, there's so much here. Like this is so deep and there's so many different uh layers of of um lessons and morals and ethics and understanding way beyond the well that's not you know i don't think that's how it really is and uh that's the, that part's not in the bible and which part is in the bible and just just a noting that it's a it's a nice refresher and reminder of of how deep some of this theological um theologically i guess influenced uh literature and art um, that's really been happening for hundreds of years um, is so thank you thanks for thanks for bringing it um, back and um, pointing us in some helpful directions and on how to de uh, dive deeper into some of those areas yeah thanks Max. Yeah. Well, thanks everyone for being here. I appreciate the thoughts. And um, I mean, we'll be, I'll hand it back over to you, Bob. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you all. And uh, thanks for being here and joining in this journey with us and Steve. Um, remember next week, we will be meeting at Aaron and Emily's for a Eucharist meal. And so that's a bring something to share if you're able to, if not, no problem. Um, we will still be having that service also on Zoom, um, but we'll be doing the small, the service aspect of that outside in the front yard at Aaron's place, followed by a Eucharist meal of just sharing in uh, brunch together, like would have been done in the days of the early church. Uh, so looking forward to seeing you there and hope you all have a great week. Thanks for being here. Thank you.